If you have your Bibles, take them, and we're going to continue um, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn to chapter 7, starting at verse 8 and going to the end of verse 24. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman, woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bond servant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Father, thank you for your word tonight. As we wrestle with it again, it is so, um, so relevant to our lives and to our world, and yet it is a difficult word. So help us to wrap our heads around it, to work it through, uh, to humble our hearts and our minds before you, and to allow your spirit to um, make the book live and to transform our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's likely not a person here tonight that in one way or another has not been touched by divorce on a very personal level. It is a real significant reality, but it's nothing new. Marriage problems have occurred since the time, basically, of marriage. And in the New Testament times in particular, divorce was a significant issue. It was something in the Roman Empire that was a significant issue. And as might be expected, as we're working our way through this book of Corinthians, the people of Corinth then had also been impacted by this reality. And specifically those in the church of Corinth who were influenced by their culture and had been called out of that culture and now were wrestling with their own responses to marriage. Paul has been dealing, if you've been with us for a little while, he's been dealing with issues related to singleness, to celibacy, to abstinence, to marriage, to sexual immorality. And these issues are all sort of wrapped up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in which Paul is responding to a letter that he's received. 
We don't have this letter, but the Corinthians had written him a letter with questions about the implications of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And they were significant in their world and in their lives. In verse 7, or verse 1 of chapter 7, you find this out. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's responding to a correspondence that he's received from them about various issues in their lives. In the first seven verses, Paul wrote a bit about singleness, and he mentioned that it is a gift of God. But he also wrote about marriage and said that marriage is a gift of God. And not only is marriage, he would go on to write, the only context for sexual relations, it is also intended by God to be a permanent relationship. So now Paul is going to talk to four different groups of believers in the church. The first group of believers are those who are now unmarried for one reason or another or are widowed. The second group are those who are married believers. There are two believers married to each other. The third group are those who are married to unbelievers who want to stay in the marriage. And the fourth is to a group of people who are married to unbelievers who wish to leave the marriage. And so everything that he says to these four groups is then reiterated from a different point of view in the verses that we won't get to look at tonight, but will come next week in verses 17 to 24. And there the the sort of big picture of those verses is that God in his sovereignty and in his providential working in our life calls us out of situations and asks us to remain in those situations. In other words, he, he doesn't call us and save us to abandon people and places and workplaces and go off and go into other places. And in particular, he says there in um, uh, verse uh, uh, 24 there, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with the Lord. So Paul is going to remind us, just because you have become a Christian doesn't mean you abandon everyone and everything in your life. Added to this is something that we'll talk about in two or three weeks from now, is that there seems to be something going on in, in, in the, the environment of Corinth. Uh, in verse 26 of chapter 7, you might, you, you'll see there, he says, I think that in view of this present crisis, there was a significant crisis that was happening uh, uh, in Corinth and in the surrounding areas at this time. And sometimes when crisis hits, people don't make the wisest decisions. And so Paul is going to use the background of that crisis to advise them to be careful in the decisions that they're going to make. And so I think that is also influencing the advice that Paul is now going to give to these group of Christians. So the first is simply this. God's provision for our passion, the gift of marriage. That's in verses 7 to 8. And as I said, Paul is working through questions that were in this letter to him, and he's responding to particular comments about sexual relations, uh, but also some implications out of that. And he's responding to them what it means to be a Christian then. So he makes this affirmation to start with first. He says, to the married, or the, sorry, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. We'll come back to that in just a moment. If you're a person that underlines uh, in your Bible or wants to keep track of themes, one of the themes that is woven through these next number of verses is a theme of remain. Uh, it's found in verse 8, in verse 11, in verse 20, in verse 24, and in verse 40. It's a significant tie to bring things together and to have a, a theme that Paul works through there. And the theme is simply you need to, we need to be reminded not to make knee-jerk reactions when we become followers of Christ but to think through changes we want to make in our lives. The second is you might uh, underline the word good there in verse 8. Uh, this word <clears throat> has a broad um, range of meanings. Uh, it can mean at one end of the scale that which is morally good, 
Uh, it can also mean that which is aesthetically pleasing, that which is beautiful, that which is healthy, that which is sound. But here I think it simply means that which is better or more advantageous. Um, this is better than that. It's, it's not a moral statement. It's not an aesthetic statement. It's just a qualitative statement or a preferential statement. And Paul is going to say that there are advantages, practically speaking and spiritually speaking, to being single, to remaining unmarried. And I want, he wants to remind them that singleness is a gift of God. My point today in pointing this out to us is simply to reinforce and remind us that singleness in Paul's eyes is a legitimate option to marriage. It's not for everybody, I get that, but it's not a, a wrong choice in life to make to choose to be single and not be married. In fact, Paul would say, and he does say this a couple times, that it's better than marriage. We could use a little bit more of this thinking, I think, in the church. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I think we live in a culture which seems to stress marriage and, and that people that are not married and people that are, are getting older and they're not married or people whose spouses have died, we, we tend to want to matchmake and we tend to want to set them up with people. And I, I don't think that's always a healthy thing to do. Uh, we, 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 we might, if they come and say, I'm looking for a partner, we might say, okay, I'll pray for you along that way. But I think if we assume somehow that in this, that somehow marriage is the best option, then we're making the wrong assumption. Paul is very clearly saying here that marriage is not necessary, nor is it superior to singleness. So included then in this unmarried category would be both men and women, would be those not yet married, or those who had been divorced previously before coming a Christian. And finally, those whose spouses had died. But then he makes a, a recognition, which we've talked about a little bit along the way. He says, listen, he says, for some people, if one is not able to exercise self-control, and that is in the particular area of sexual passion, then it is better to marry than burn. It's a different word, better, than the word that's used uh, just the sentence earlier but it has the same sort of semantic range as that word. The Greek also does not have the, the inclusion that the ESV adds there with passion. Um, that's an addition that I think tries to interpret what it means to, it is buried, better to marry than burn. And so the ESV translators are trying to interpret that a little bit for us. I think though we need to understand that, uh, that there's, a, there's, a, there, there's a, a real passion and a sexual passion that women and men can have. And that marriage is the legitimate expression or way to, to release that passion. It's not the only purpose for marriage, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. There's a lot of reasons that God has given us marriage. But one of the reasons is that is the place in which sexual passion is, is, is provided for and it's released. And Paul says, listen, it's not really wise if, if there's a man or a woman that is um, full of sexual passion that they choose the single life. He says, that's a silly thing. Why, why not marry rather than burn with passion? It's not necessarily a negative thing. It's just really saying, listen, why would you go for life being so difficult on yourself and putting yourself in so many tempting situations when you have the option of marriage? So I think there it's very clear. It is better to marry than burn with passion. But there's another option to that. And that is that we know in the scripture that sexual immorality is something that is forbidden by God. It's something that keeps people out of the kingdom of God, and it's something for which many will, uh, uh, it's a sin which, which will keep one out of the kingdom of God, and actually it will, re it will keep us separated from God into eternity. 
And the implication here is that if one continues in their sexual immorality, that the judgment will be they will spend eternity in hell. And so those are both biblical options, to burn with passion in this life or to burn in hell in the life to come. And so Paul says, listen, if you aren't able to remain single and you have sexual passion, then it is better to marry than burn. And you can put the interpretation behind that with what you want. So God's provision then for them is marriage. And if you want to get married, get married. If you don't have to get married, stay single. The second issue that he talks about is the permanence of marriage. It's God's position on the permanence of marriage. And the Bible says that marriage is built to last. That is how God has always intended that marriage be. Most agree that now he's addressing a second group. In verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and the widows. In verse 10, he says, to the married. Most understand that to be those who are both Christians, to a Christian man and a Christian woman who are in a marriage relationship. This now is Paul talking to them. There are significant verses. Because it seems that some in the church in Corinth and in churches down through history, people question the permanence of marriage. And they might be saying, well, listen, if the single state is better, then it would be best that I leave my marriage and become single. Maybe some would be arguing, and it seems that this has come out of Corinth, that somehow sexual relations are incompatible with sanctification. That means holiness or growing with God. And if that's the case, then it's better that I leave my marriage and become a single person. Some were asking, do marriage vows end when I become a follower of Jesus, when I become a Christian, and my spouse does not? Well, if yes, then I better leave the marriage. These were just some of the scenarios that these Christians were working through in their heads. And Paul says as strongly as he can say, to the married, I give this charge, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. In other words, um, Paul has apostolic authority, but Jesus spoke on divorce and marriage a number of times. And you can find what Jesus said in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke about his instruction to that. And so Paul begins by talking to these people. And he says to them, listen, uh, I, I command you. This is not a suggestion. It's not positive encouragement. It's not sort of take it or leave it. This is a command. It's binding. It's universal. The force of these words are primarily forceful because they are God's words to us. Secondly, he says, not I, but the Lord. And I've already indicated that's because Jesus, he's referring to words that Jesus spoke while he was on earth as he addressed the situation of divorce and remarried. You take verses 10 and 11, and they're not hard to understand. The meaning is pretty plain and simple. You give it to a five-year-old, you give it to uh, a six-year-old, and you say, read this and tell me what it means, and they would tell you what it means without any problem. The issue is not with the meaning of the words. The issue is with obedience to those words. He says here that a wife is not to separate from her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. That's what Jesus taught. The counsel to the wife applies equally to the husband. If you do leave the marriage, then you are to remain single or be reconciled to your spouse. I know right now that there's just a gazillion thoughts that are rushing through most of your head. And I would love, I've said, to have a screen up there and all your thoughts be blasted up there to say, wait a minute. What about this situation? What about that situation? That doesn't fit here. That doesn't fit there. And all I would ask that you is just, just, just put aside those arguments and those questions that you have and listen to the word of God and let the word of God um, help you instruct you guide you 
Wrestle with God, don't wrestle with me. And so he says very clearly here then that the woman is not to separate from the husband and the husband is not to divorce his wife. I hope we all understand here tonight that marriage is not a man-made um, institution. It is a gift of God to creation. That in the very beginning, in, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, before this world went sideways and was turned upside down, God included marriage in the creative acts that he performed. And at the end of those created acts, marriage included in that was declared by God to be very good. In fact, there's only one time in there, uh, those first two chapters, where God looks at something and says, well, that's not good. And it's in verse 18 where it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then in verse 21 of chapter 2, he describes that. And he says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. It's fascinating to me, and I, I, I have gotten into trouble already today for saying this, but I'm going to say it again. I believe very clearly that this is a reminder to us that God spoke and man was created. God spoke and woman was created. He formed them. It wasn't, uh, the creation of mankind was not something that happened over millions of years. It was an instantaneous act of creative power by God. And he made man and woman. And then the man said, this, is the la- this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and now hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is where marriage comes from, loved one. It's not out of the heart of any man or woman. It comes from God himself. And page after page after page in the scriptures affirms and reaffirms God's intention to us that marriage is his idea and that it be permanent. And in fact, there's commandments and and guidelines all through the scripture that warn us about undermining marriage. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments is very clearly, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not break up a marriage, either you breaking up your own or you break up someone else's marriage. God has always intended that marriage be permanent. So divorce took place, but it was never God's idea. God's heart was always for the permanence of marriage. So we move ahead to the New Testament, and Jesus was asked about divorce and remarriage a number of times. And I picked Mark chapter 10 because it seems to be the most explicit passage of this, but it's not the only passage in the New Testament that refers to this. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We're going back to Genesis chapter 2 there. And the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. As an aside, I have what some would call a very conservative view of divorce and remarriage. I believe there's only three reasons that the Bible gives that um, one can divorce and remarry. One is death. And if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. Uh, the second one is um, 
sexual promiscuity of a grievous nature. Um, Jesus would say that. He said that very clearly. That's the exception clause. So sexual promiscuity of a grievous nature. And the third is desertion, which we'll reference very quickly here. I don't think there's any other reason that God gives that allows for divorce and remarriage in Scripture. In our text, though, Paul is repeating, repeating and simply affirming Jesus' words to them. It's a question that they have. Marriage is, in God's eyes, intended to be a permanent, lifelong relationship. What God, therefore, has joined together, let no man separate. Paul is upholding the standard in his response to the Corinthian letter to him. The wife is not to separate from her husband, and the husband is not to divorce his wife. This is very practical stuff, I think, to hear. Because marriage is one of the toughest relationships that you will ever enter into. And we need to hear these words clearly. We need to embed their truth in our hearts and minds. It is the clarity of, the conviction about, the origin of, and the unalterable nature of these words that we need to guide us when it gets tough. And marriage gets tough. And if we think in our head that there is an option or is the way out, then that will weaken our conviction and resolve to stay in it. And so it's helpful for us to hear these words of, of Paul to us in his response to the Corinthians about Jesus' words and God's intention for marriage. Jesus simply states, God declared that marriage is meant to be permanent. I hope that I am coming across with some measure of grace and mercy because I realize that like everything else in life, we sin and we fall short of God's expectation in our life. And like every other situation, there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness. And that if we find ourselves in a situation where we have gone astray from God's command, we can come back and we can find grace and mercy and forgiveness. The final thing that he says is that God's plan, or God's plan for two kingdom marriages, we are called to peace, we are not bound. To the rest, in verse 12, to the rest I say, this is the third category. And most, and I agree with them, understand this to be talking about a marriage in which two people were followers or were not followers of Jesus Christ and the gospel was preached and one of them responded in faith and became a follower of Jesus. And now you have in a, in a marriage, you have one that is following Jesus and one that is not following Jesus. And so their question is, well, what should we do? What's our response to this situation? And Paul's word to them is simply, stay where you are. Remain in that marriage. And we'll repeat this again and again. In whatever condition you find yourself called out of, there remain with God. He says, I, not the Lord. Don't let that trouble you. All that Paul is saying here, Paul has apostolic authority. In other words, God used Paul to record his words to us. What he's simply saying here is that there is no word of Jesus about this particular situation. Jesus never responded to a situation of what happens if there's two people that are married and one comes to Christ. And so that's why Paul says, I, not the Lord say this and the circumstance is simply that as i said one of the marriage partners has become a christian and the others is not and what may be going through the head because of the context of this is is the believing partner defiled defiled by being married to and having sexual relations with an unbeliever should they divorce clearly paul says absolutely not there is no devilement that takes place it is still the the union that god has ordained and put together and it is a permanent union and should be maintained as a permanent union. The principle is stay in the marriage because that is God's view of marriage. It's what Jesus taught on marriage. 
And I hope we understand that marriage is not just for Christians. Marriage is God's gift to humankind. And God's desire for all marriage, whether they are Christian or not, is that that marriage be permanent and that there, nothing, that there be nothing that come and separate that marriage and those two people. And so the application is back in Corinth, Paul is dealing with this situation and he's asking or he's being asked about it. When one partner becomes a Christian and the other does not, the Christian in the marriage is to remain in that marriage unless the unbelieving spouse leaves. The Christian partner is to be content in the marriage and not seek separation, divorce, or to drive the unbelieving partner away. However, if the unbelieving partner chooses to leave, Paul says, don't stand in the way. Why? There's, there's lots of reasons. But Paul mentions one of them in verse 14, and he says, listen, stay in the marriage because the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. In other words, there is a sanctifying effect that comes to a home, and I will argue this next week, that also comes to a business or a neighborhood or a school classroom by having a Christian in that environment. Because of God's mercy and God's love and God's blessing that it emanates from us and it reaches out from us. It's part of what it means to be salt and life in the world. And I hope we understand that light is always stronger than darkness and that good is always stronger than evil and that righteousness is always better than, un uh, than, than unrighteousness. And wherever there is a child of God present, there is a greater power for good than the power of evil that might be present in that particular setting. And so to be made holy, though, is not the same as to be saved. This is not saying that the unbelieving partner or children are saved because of the presence of the believing spouse. It just means that there is a preserving effect. There is a, there is a sanctifying effect. There is a blessing that comes upon that home and upon that relationship. There is an influence. Uh, the Bible talks about an aroma, about a sanctifying and a preserving effect in the home and on the spouse and on the children, that God lives in that spouse and God lives in that home and the spouse prays and the spouse serves and the spouse loves and the spouse submits to God and walks with God and evil is repelled and God is glorified and welcome and the godliness of the believing spouse is of greater effect than the ungodliness of the unbelieving spouse. It's a wonderful picture that Paul paints here about the beauty of the influence, the salt and light of a Christian. You might remember, some of you who know your Bibles, the story of Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 18. And uh, God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin that's in those cities and the cities in the plains. And God says, you know what, I, I think I'm going to talk to Abraham first. He's my friend. I want to come and I want to work this through Abraham and I'm going to tell him what I'm about to do. So God comes down and goes for a walk with Abraham. It's a beautiful picture about walking with God. And I believe that God can walk with us like he walked with Abraham and like Enoch walked with him. But he comes down and they go for a walk and God tells him, uh, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, hmm, God, would you do it for 45 people? If there are 45 people who loved you in those areas, would you still destroy the city? God, no, I won't. I'll preserve it for 45 people. And there's this dialogue and this debate that goes back and forth between God and Abraham. And eventually they get down to 10 people. And Abraham risks a great deal. And he says, okay, God, if there are 10 people 
that are faithful and love you and serve you in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you spare the city? And God says, yes, I will. And I think that's a, a, an illustration of the influence that the godly can have in their environments, in your classrooms, in your neighborhoods, in your marriages, in your relationships with one another, that there is a preserving effect that comes upon places because of God's work in our life. But he says, listen, there is an allowance for desertion. We're called to peace. We are not bound. There's a considerable amount of grace and mercy in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. There's incredible grace and mercy here to both parties. I think there's grace and mercy that God exhibits to the believing spouse who has done everything within their power to sustain and maintain and, and love their partner. Um, there's also incredible grace and mercy to the unbelieving partner who says, I, I just can't live with this change. I can't live in this situation. It is too much for me. And if they leave, God says of the believing individual, they are not bound. I don't know <coughs> if you have ever thought about this. We think a lot about how our salvation impacts us. And almost every one of you, if, if somebody, um, if you wanted to tell people about your faith, you would tell them what Jesus has done for you. Maybe how he's given you light, how he's given you love, how he's given you hope, um, how he's fixed your broken heart, how he's become a friend that sticks closer to your brother, how your sins have been forgiven, how you feel clean inside, how the guilt and the shame of your sins is being evaporated and washed away because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can tell them over and over what God has done for you and how important that has been in your life. But do we ever think about the impact of our faith on those around us? on how they perceive the change that has taken place in us. Do we ever think about a spouse in a marriage becoming a Christian and the other spouse, even in a good marriage, who doesn't respond to Christ? What that is like for them. I came across this uh, in my reading, and it was one man responding to just such a scenario. There was a doctor in Cape Town, a brain surgeon, and he put it this way, and he was asked, what did he find most difficult about his wife's newfound faith? He stressed two things. First, he said, she was no longer the person whom he had originally fallen in love with and whom he had decided to marry. That is a significant statement. He's not necessarily saying it's something bad, but what he is saying is there was a transformation in his wife that changed her desires, that changed her loves, that changed her wishes, that changed her behaviors, that changed her characters, and she was not the same woman that he fell in love with and he married. That's a really helpful thing for us to store in our heads and think about as we think about the incredible transformation that takes place in an individual when they become a follower of Jesus Christ. You become a new person. And then he goes on and he says, Secondly, there was another man about the house to whom she was all the time referring her every decision and whom she chose to consult for his advice and instruction. He was no longer the boss in his own house. Jesus gave the orders and set the pace. That's a real careful but interesting observation. It doesn't even mean that there was rebellion, a lack of submission. It just meant that Jesus was now the Lord of her life. 
It just meant that Jesus was the one that guided and directed her steps. And he said of, of all the things that impacted the marriage most, it was those two things in his life. The short of the matter then is that the believing partner is not bound to the marriage. And as I understand it, not bound opens the door to remarriage. The door to remarriage is open with one provision though, that one remarry only in the Lord. That is Paul's only advice and admonition to people. But he would go on to say remarriage is not the best option. In his opinion, you're better off to remain single. And then finally, in verse 16, he says, For how do you know, wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? I, I find this um, a bit of a challenging verse to wrestle around in my head. I, I'm not sure which of two options I think is the best option for understanding this. Some would understand this verse to be saying, if, there are tension, if the tensions in the marriage become too great, then let the marriage dissolve. How do you know whether or not by staying in that marriage your partner will become a Christian? In other words, don't hang on to the marriage for the sake of peace at all costs. Don't stay in the marriage because you believe you're the only hope for that person to come to faith in Jesus Christ. If they want to go, you're not bound. The potential salvation of your spouse is not restricted to you. God can use numerous people in numerous circumstances to bring your loved one to the faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says, don't worry about it. If peace is not happening in your marriage and your partner wants to go, then let them go. Others understand Paul to be, encouraged one, be encouraging one to stay in the marriage. For how do you not know whether or not your spouse will come to the Lord? In other words, while it may not be an ideal marriage, God may bring your spouse to faith through your example. Your life might be the means through which your spouse is saved. But if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then let them leave. I'm not sure which to choose between those. I think what I do know is that no marriage should be peace at any price. Um, and I mean that by no marriage in a context of a believer and an unbeliever. If it gets so out of hand, if it gets so difficult, if the battles are so severe, and the one partner says, you know what, I think I need to leave this marriage, then Paul would say to the Christian, you are not bound. If that person wants to leave, then let them go. I think what I get out of all of this, I get lots out of it, but what I get out of all of this is certainly this, marriage matters. That marriage is not something that we come into and come out to at will and at want. That God has always intended that all our marriages, whether we're Christians or not Christians, be permanent relationships until the day that one of us dies. And that Paul's fundamental answer to somebody contemplating divorce is don't. Simply don't. That was never God's intention for a marriage. That is not God's intention for your marriage. And so don't consider that as an option. These are significant words. And for a group of individuals who had been called out of a world in which divorce was rampant, and in fact probably many of them had been divorced and had experienced that, Paul's comment to them would have been very difficult for them to understand and to accept. But it also gave them very clear guidelines about God's standards. And so to the married and the widows, you can remarry, but you don't have to. To those who are married in the Lord, stay married. If you separate, stay single or be reconciled. To those whose faith changes the marriage, remain in the marriage. If your spouse wishes to leave, don't stand in the way. You're not bound. Helpful words for us. May God help us to wrestle through these um, tonight and through the rest of this week. 
May God help us to also wrestle through these, though, with great grace and great mercy, with hearts and minds that are full of forgiveness, hearts and minds that understand that God's desires for us are for our good, not our harm, that God knows what He's doing in whatever situation we find ourselves in, and that we learn to be content in whatever situation or relationship we find ourselves in. Father in heaven, I thank you for our time together around your word. It's been a good night to worship you and to sing songs about you and to be reminded of what Christ has done for us and to be reminded of what you do for us and to be encouraged by the fact that you do fill us and you do guide us and you do direct us and then to be reminded in your word about something so practical as the nature of our relationships and marriage and singleness. And so would you help us to contemplate these things, to work them through in our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.